Hello, welcome to the Real Work Podcast with me, Fleur Emery. Unedited conversations with women who are changing up the world of work. Extraordinary women who are founders, thought leaders or trailblazers. Here to inspire and inform your idea of what's possible for you. Hello, this week on the Real Work Podcast, our guest is Louise Atiba-Davies. Louise has worked in fashion for nearly three decades, starting off working for big companies, the kind that you may have heard of, bought clothes from. And she now has her own business, looking at a future of her industry, which is more um, ethical and sustainable. She actually spent some years living in China and working in factories there. And so her insight is, I mean, it's really interesting. It's really interesting to sort of go behind the curtain and find out what that's really like. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Here's Louise. Thank you for being here. How many false starts have we had? About 100, literally. About 100. It probably feels like more. (laughs) It just takes all the sort of sexy spontaneity out of podcasting. I'm really sorry. It does. I'm grateful that you persevered. Thanks. I was like, I'm not giving up on this. Yes. It's happening. Exactly. It's going to go through. So let's do it. So I first was introduced to you because we have a, a mutual contact and... I've been talking to her about the conversations around fashion and I was kind of talking to Sam about, you know, my changing views of fashion. There's quite a few real workers in that world and you have such an interesting view on it. I couldn't help sort of wanting to um, twist your arm and get you here. And it took a while, but I think it's going to be worth it. First, before we dig in yeah. to the stuff, the behind the scenes views you've had of manufacturing, which is what I'm really interested in having a look at. Yeah. Can you tell us about your business now? Yeah. So um, my business is called In-House Creative Agency. And we are a startup. We only started the business, we only started the business last year um, at the start of the pandemic, which was like the best time to start a business. Um, so I've been in fashion for about 18 years. And at the beginning, the agency really was about the extension of the services that I offered as a freelance designer. So design and manufacturing and uh, branding. But when the pandemic hit and lots of fashion designers were losing their jobs, the market just became really saturated with those kind of businesses and those kind of consultancies. And uh, rather than continue in that direction, I decided to just take a step back away from what I was doing and actually really think about, you know, the changes that I wanted to see within the industry, why I wanted to start uh, the business and how I was going to pivot it to make it a little bit different to what was out there at, the, at that moment. So basically 3D design kind of came... Can I jump you back a step? Yeah. Can I interrupt you? Yeah. So... Um... In a way, so you were working as a fashion designer for big clients. What kind of clients were you designing clothes for? So very much kind of commercial, kind of commercial high street fashion. So I designed... Do you want to name one? (laughs) 
name. Name <laughs> them. Name, Marcus name. has got a massive wardrobe. Give us some names. My designs are Marks and Spencers, Next, um, Topshop, uh, wow. New Look, Primark. And then when the pandemic came, when you say the industry changed, what that did that mean that people were buying less clothes, those shops had less money and they were hiring people, you know, less. And so there just wasn't as much work knocking about. Is that what you well, mean? Well, I think the pandemic kind of accelerated what we could already see happening on the high street. So the high street was, was kind of decimating anyway. I mean, the likes of... Yeah, just collapsing. Yeah, it was collapsing, Topshop, and they had their heyday. They were great at that time, but you could see as a designer, maybe not as a consumer, you couldn't see it, but as a designer, as someone who was um, just always kind of with a kind of eye on what was happening in terms of trading, in terms of manufacturing, in terms of kind of the insights into the industry, I could see that, you know, slowly but surely, these kind of companies were kind of starting to starting, struggle, really starting to struggle, taking longer to do things, exactly. not having such big budgets, cutting corners, um, sending through stuff that's not quite good enough, using cheaper people, all of those things that show that a business is kind of in trouble behind the scenes. And then comes the pandemic. And just, just pushes these companies fill, over the edge. Just base, <laughs> yeah, literally just puts a pillow on their face. Where I live in Portsmouth, all my whole life, there was a John Lewis and a Debenhams and um, massive properties on our very small high street. They were the two kind of things. And they've... Um, and they've both gone yeah. in this last year. Exactly. And it has, yes, yeah, so, I mean, it literally has changed the high street, which is now some coffee shops and a charity shop and a branch of Lloyd's. And that's kind of it. Exactly. I mean, there's some brands out there who, who have got stronger, you know, because they're as, as companies, as brands, their strategies were stronger and their branding was strong. But you had companies like, you had brands like the likes of Topshop and the likes of Oasis and Warehouse that, whose strategies really hadn't changed whose customer really still hadn't been identified you know philip green was known for that though wasn't he, he was yeah. known for being so old school for being like um a market trader on um steroids kind of thing that he his approach all the way through his business was what we would now call quite old-fashioned actually yeah, exactly. in this sort of age of like whistle whistle blowing and sort of so was there a feeling like people like did you see that happening? Did you think, well, this can't go on for much longer, the way these structures are? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, um, a lot of these brands are kind of run by old school men, you know, guys that have been in the industry for 150 years, you know, who are now board members who are executives within these businesses. And fashion, the fashion industry in the UK very much runs like an old boys club and has done for a long time. So you have the same kind of people going from one, going from Marks and Spencers to Next to Debenhams to John Lewis, you know, it's the same circle of people. So you could see, um, definitely, you know, these, these, these people, didn't, they didn't want to change, you know, they've, they've kind of worked in the same way. They were seeing fashion in the same way. It was very difficult to create change when at the top, you know, the, the ways of what working was still quite archaic and the views of how people were consuming was were not changing. So, yeah, I mean, I think as... as Sounds grim, Louise. <laughs> Sounds grim. Like, let's, I mean, let's be honest. Because for, 
great. Gloom and doom. It it just sounds awful. And from where I'm sitting, like in the sort of, I come out of the sort of startup sort of hacky kind of like thing of like independent brands. And it's just complete anathema, the idea of having a massive company and having no control over your supply chain and not really caring where your trim comes from, not, not really caring and just not, and just talking in terms of pounds and pence the whole time. It's just like, you had to go. So that squeeze, that squeeze and um, the, the, the squeeze on you, yeah. I mean, you were changing anyway because, mm. you know, you, it's like waking up and just saying, actually, I'm just not, I don't, exactly. you know, I'm not going to do that. Exactly. I couldn't, I, in, you know, I kind of got to a point in the industry where I kind of just thought, I just can't do it. I can't work in the same way. You know, I can't design another collection based on, you know, boho traveler. I just can't do it. I've got no more, no more boho travelers in me. Marcus, <laughs> <laughs> how would you describe your style? Boho Traveller? Boho Traveller. I mean, that's the epitome of Boho Traveller. I literally wear four (laughs) colours, black, white, grey and navy. (laughs) Fashion has literally drawn the life out of me. I've got nothing left. I had nothing left to give, to be really... You're just an avatar of yourself. (laughs) Precisely. And then fashion just wasn't fun anymore. I'm just like the same old thing with the same old ways of design and product development and manufacture it was just like once you've done it for so long it becomes so dry you're just you know you could do it with your eyes closed you're not even thinking about it and uh, I just remember just working for one high street retailer just banging out like poly viscose lycra trousers you know five pocket put a tab on it put a you know a button under the pocket and I was just like Where's the creativity in life gone? But mm. I kind of feel like I kind of feel like it's not all doom and gloom. We kind of need to bring it back we into changed. the light. You, you, you made some radicals. You ripped the plaster off. I literally well, did. As you were describing that situation, how you felt, do you know the image that's going to my mind? The bit of Beauty and the Beast when Belle's sort of spinning round in the field singing, there must be something more to life than this for me. There must be something this provincial life there you are that's exactly what it was like it was like a it was like an r&b video like in the rain just going no i can't take it anymore (laughs) mary jane exactly with a a car just like giving it bringing all the emotion into it i was like i cannot take it anymore and literally 3d designers just turned the industry on its head i mean We've gone from one extreme to the other. We've got. We've gone. Can from... you explain? Explain what three D design means. What, like, firstly, what it is, and then why has it shaken everything up? So, I mean, in fashion, um, historically, we've designed in two D, which is just like pen and paper sketching. Um, and that's how it's kind of always been. Three D design. Um, is is like CAD design souped up. So it's computer-aided design, but souped up to the max. So you're, you're able to kind of draw your garment um, straight onto your computer using 3D software. And 3D software, a lot of 3D software come from the gaming industry. So really kind of, yeah, so Clo3D, one of the biggest kind of software companies for 3D, started its life in gaming. So it's, 
It's, really, it's just really cool. Like the crossover is really cool. And then you're able to see your garment come to life because you're, you're seeing it in 3D form. Um, the rendering is unbelievable. So you, it looks like a real garment rather than having a... Rendering. Skin. Oh, the rendering is like... Let's have a vocab <laughs> test. Okay, update so us. The rendering is basically the drawing of the garment. So it's kind of making it... As you're, as you're drawing it, you can really make it photorealistic with... Um, um, yeah, with like drawing it in certain ways on, on, on 3D software. So it's such a cool way of bringing your garment to life before before even like, you know, going to uh, you know, sample making stage, which is, I guess, in like the traditional route in fashion would be 2D design. And you're doing like 100 million sketches to, you know, to only kind of, design like really design a 10-piece collection so you you sat there just drawing and drawing and drawing and boho traveler boho traveler <laughs> boho traveler boho, oh, let's tassel, travel let's travel <laughs> add something dangly <laughs> exactly precisely <laughs> and you're drawing all you, you know you're drawing this maybe sketching it and you're coloring it in and you're making it look fabulous for these um you know the big buying meetings and for them to wave across that, exactly and you've got buyers who need to see like the most realistic you know you know drawn garment because you know a lot of people haven't got the imagination to kind of think oh that could be there you've got to draw it exactly as is so that's a massive process in itself and then your buyers kind of selecting but you know as a buyer because you're not because you're not really sure about how garments are going to look in real life that you end up having to sample and that's physically make these garments that you've designed um and, and make a lot of them. So you're, maybe your collection's like 20 pieces, but you're making maybe 60 or 70 samples. So you can actually like whittle it down. But the, the process of that is, you know, as a designer is making technical files. So you're drawing these, these garments again, flat, then adding your measurements, then sending these, these sketches off to China or India or wherever you're, wherever you're manufacturing, and then having someone in a sample room look at it and then create this garment. But, you know, it's a lot of time. And then send it back wrong. And then send it back And then wrong. you don't get it. And then you send you the wrong package and then you go back and forth, back and forth. And... Most of these clothes are made of plastic, <laughs> um, right? Let's be honest. Plastic with 10 million different names, and most yeah. of them end up in landfill, yes. probably in the same countries that have manufactured them far away yeah. from us who are waving them across and saying no. Exactly. That's basically what's, I mean, what's going down. There's a lot of waste. One, you know, for, the, for these samples, if they're wrong and they're made again and they're made again and they're made again, a lot of these samples that are then thrown away. So, yes, they ultimately end up in landfill. So you are waking up as the rest of the world is waking up mm-hmm. and the kind of lifeboat out of this situation of the Titanic was your understanding that this developing technology yeah. was the future of your industry in terms of the accuracy of the designs, the shortening Completely. of the time frame, so yeah. lowering costs exactly. and saving waste. Ultimately, yeah. I mean, it's such a more sustainable way of working and it's a way of adding um, sustainability into your practice rather than kind of just 
saying I'm using a sustainable... your supply chain. Exactly. Because, yeah. you know, using a sustainable fabric is great, but it's not really creating the impact within the product development process that we actually need to see. Because, you know, factories are still having to make samples, even though you're using a sustainable fabric. And, and then, you know, you can't really talk about sustain, sustainability without talking about ethical practice. And, you know, factories are still... Batches are still having to, you know, hire people on less than minimum wage to, to make these samples. So you're not really creating change just using sustainable fabrics or trims. So you'd come <laughs> to the re- end of the road in this yeah. way of working. You'd seen something which really inspired you to understand that the future in your industry could be different, which is great. So you didn't have to leave your industry altogether. Yeah. And so you struck out alone what was that like Louise when you said right I'm now going to be my own business uh, I think I was ready for it I'm obviously it's really scary yeah, right in one way I was kind of ready for it because I was like there's, there's nothing else I can do within this industry and I didn't want to I didn't want to then change I mean I did think about going back to university I was like maybe I could come and become a doctor or a surgeon you know but that's not really going to happen <laughs> so I'd already reached that point well it could do I think you'd make us I may think you've made a great doctor <laughs> just by the way but um yeah I mean that's like yeah. eight, another eight years studying exactly. and probably like 100 grand or something to train precisely I was like you know I do love my industry I just needed to kind of find the love again and don't get me wrong going into business was hardcore scary I mean why would anyone want to do this to themselves? It's, you know, you have to put on a lot of different hats. You know, I, I'd come from working for biz- working for other businesses to becoming a freelancer, which in itself is, I guess, you know, running your own small business to actually officially becoming a business. And I think that it's definitely a mindset shift between each one. But I thought the the shift between freelancer and business was gonna be a very smooth one. And um, in reality, it, it, it wasn't. And I think that because my mindset hadn't shifted from freelancer, it made the process of seeing myself as a business owner and seeing myself as a, you know, as creator of this business quite difficult. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, so this is a process that Buckers is going through at the moment. Oh, isn't really? It? Yeah. Oh, it's hard, isn't it? Buckers, give us your. What, what does that sound like to you? That's yeah. It's really similar because when I I was made redundant at the beginning of the pandemic from my radio yeah. job. And I decided I made the decision to become a freelance producer. And over the next few months, I kind of was gaining clients. And I'm now at a position where I can, I think my next moves over the next couple of months or so will really kind of solidify whether I continue being like a kind of glorified freelancer or actually, you know, grow and scale and and actually and actually make a business out of you know make a produ- production company essentially yeah. so and you're you're right there's there's just so many hats that you have to wear so many it's 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 intense it's isn't really it? intense i mean one minute i'm like accountant as well as like and i'm a fashion designer i know i, ha- I do not know numbers i'm like number blind <laughs> and that's like 
so important when you're running a business to know your numbers. So the other thing you both have in common is that you were successful in your prior careers. Because one one yeah. thing mm. which is like a differentiator is with people, with women who come into real work is that ones who sort of like me who started businesses because they couldn't fit in in those structures and those mm-hmm. systems. I just yeah. you know I just couldn't. I just couldn't move forward in them. I couldn't understand them. I just couldn't get on with them. And, but both of you have navigated that within those systems and had success. Yeah. So then, mm-hmm. you know, I think the culture shock's almost worse. I think, I think it's harder because for me, I had nothing to go back to. So I just yes. had something to prove. It was just like, yes. there wasn't anything there. I don't have an alternative. This is how, yeah. this is how I am. I can't function in those big companies. But, you know, yeah. giving up mm. something where you have had stability, even though exactly. you've had to compromise your values a bit and you've you know been creatively chipped away at or maybe pushed around a bit or not mm. paid a little bit here and there. All of those standard problems from big companies you you know it does offer you security and reliability and regularity and then you just go have to go into riding yeah. the wave yeah that's it <laughs> yeah and you didn't leave because you hated it you exactly didn't, it's not like you made a decision and thought i don't enjoy this anymore yeah you were kind of thrust into this kind of new yeah like new path it's difficult and it throws up a lot i mean i you know, it, it throws up stuff about, you know, your self-worth and even as a freelancer, just learning how to price my services for me was just, yeah. it, it, it opened up a whole kind of worm. So, you know, again, shifting to, to the, into that kind of business world, it did it again. And I started, actually started therapy at the same time as starting my business. And, it, you know, I would say to anyone who's starting a business, do it because it really helped with um, how mm. I kind of dealt, dealt with stuff, you know, because it's like as a freelancer, when you're kind of doing stuff yourself, you're, you're practically and actively doing the work, you know, you're seeing the change, you're getting paid straight away, or, you know, you know that, you know, you're getting paid for your services. It's it's so different to kind of having that little step back as a business owner and, and not being the active person because you've got 10 million different hats on, so you're not being the active person. Sometimes things are a bit slower, sometimes, and you're not used to it, you know. I'm used to, like, being, right, okay, I've worked out these designs and, you know, I'm doing the next collection and I'm doing it too. Okay, so I need to, like, because I don't use 3D software, so it's not my it's not my forte. I work with a, lot, a, a whole team of 3D designers. So it's not me doing the work and actually not having that possession of... The work, I'm just like, it's, it's been really difficult. And actually just seeing successes in a different way. So not monetizing success. Success can mean so many different yeah. things. Whereas before, even in my working for companies um, mindset was, you know, success comes with promotion and money. And Well, that's the only of, measure in that situation exactly. in, in those types of businesses yeah. that you're describing, the yeah. incremental increase. And of course, it's a... It's a rigged system because once you get the promotion and an incremental pay bump, you also just get more work. You just get more responsibility exactly. and more work. So you're building yourself, you're weaving yourself further yeah. into the system, which isn't right for you. Like um, like on Alien, when they stick that stuff around those, so they hang up those people in the pods. Just <laughs> st- they just stick you. And there's more and more sticky stuff going around you to keep you in that system. 
We want you out of the system. We're going to liberate you with our flamethrower. <laughs> you don't know what I'm talking about, Buckers. Alien. No, Alien. It's a movie with Sigourney Weaver. No. I think you yes. need to watch that before next week. Okay, okay that's your homework. Okay. Um, yeah. So one, I'm, I'm really glad that you got out of that and that you understood you know how and and you listen this isn't everyone knows that i don't like philip green you know he's crazy <laughs> about me but you know that's another story um but it's not it's not all bad there's stuff because you've come out of that knowing a lot about yourself and a lot about a lot actually in the industry one of the things yeah, which yeah. i was so fascinated to learn about when i first met you was manufacturing in china so uh, <laughs> buckers I, I know you know you're this will now, there's this kind of thing for, for people who don't know about manufacturing. Like, I didn't know about manufacturing garments, because, mm. you know, there's a whole kind of thing of, like, made in China means bad, you know? There's, and it's quite... <laughs> yeah. And what's really interesting in this whole um, um, shift in consciousness around um, diversity is I suddenly realized that there's a lot of racism in that. There's a lot of anti-Asian racism and like, mm. you know, China's mm. so bad. Look at, you know, they look at their um, wet markets. Look at this. They, you know, look, there's so, and that's sort of tied in. There's this whole thing. And I've been yeah. guilty of saying this thing. It's like, you know, mm. Chinese factories, blah, 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 Chinese factories. Yeah. And actually the, the China's as big as like, I mean, it's just a massive massive place isn't it but i was guilty of just like sort of waving my hand across that and yeah. just like saying oh that's all bad over there they're bad we're good and they're bad made in england's good made in china's bad and you pulled me up you corrected me on that can you tell us about how you found out about chinese factories i lived in china for a number of years about how did you come to live there so basically, it was a very odd story. I'd never even never even thought about moving to China. And um, the company that I was working for were being taken over by a, a Hong Kong company. And it was literally the sink or swim. Because I remember they all came, you know, all the board members had come over to the UK for a meeting. They wanted to change everything, um, the whole company. So I didn't, I didn't know whether my job was secure or not. And I thought, okay, it's time to kind of move on anyway. I remember I went for an interview with a with a really big retailer, and um, this this job was in Shanghai. And I didn't really even think about like whether I was going to move to Shanghai. I just this interview Had came you been up, there so I just before? went. I'd never been there. I've never been. To, I've never I been literally to China. had no idea about moving to China. And I remember I went with this interview and the woman just, I remember the HR woman just sold me the Chinese dream. She was just telling me about Shanghai Nights Out and how amazing it was and how many designers they had out there. Like, it just, I was literally just like, oh my God, I didn't care about the job. I was like, this sounds amazing. This sounds like right up my street. And just to put it into context, at that time, I was like living in a shared house, not really own, earning enough money, was in a, a huge amount of debt from I being a student. So I was literally as poor as hell. And then you're like, yeah. hey, <laughs> hey girls, uh, moving to Shanghai. <laughs> literally, Woo. it was just like, 
his company were like, we'll pay your rent, we'll like pay your life. I just saw pound signs in China. Wow. I was like, I'm there. Wow, um, you're so brave. I love this. Yeah, I didn't go out there with that company though. Um, that job in particular, I remember I actually had to think about that job. And it was for children's wear, and I was like, nah, I'm not, I'm not gonna do that. But it was really weird because like two weeks after um, going for that interview, another job came up in Shanghai and um, perfect. It was the product that I designed. So I was a tailoring designer, same product, head of, head of design for a Chinese company. And no boho the, traveler. Yeah, bo- boho, it was boho traveler. Mm-hmm. Not but a you tassel know what? in sight. My portfolio was full of boho traveler. <laughs> <laughs> the tailored version. Um, and the guy who was running this business with uh, his Chinese partner had worked for the supplier that I was working for at that time. So I went for the interview and he was like, yes, sweet, you got the job. <laughs> it was so easy. And three months later, I was like in Shanghai. I was like, by people. And I was there, living there. And What's it, it was- like there? Like for someone who knows nothing? Um, utter madness. I mean, I couldn't even cross the road for like two weeks of, of living there because I didn't understand the traffic system. Because when a when a light is green, obviously you can go, and when a light is red, obviously people are still crossing the roads and the cars are still coming. And I'm just like, I, what is going on here? And it was, I kind of went with no expectations because I'd never been. Um, so everything was just new to me and mental and, you know, I kind of thought I'd be able to get by without being able to speak Chinese. And that was, yeah, silly because, you know, a lot of Chinese people, a lot of Chinese people in Shanghai can speak English, but like taxi drivers and in shops and supermarkets, they don't. So it was a huge How did you get around that? I learned taxi Chinese within like a week. I had a a designer who I was working with, who was with me all the time. Um, And basically she'd be like, okay, this is how you pronounce stuff. This is how you say stop to the taxi driver. This is how you do this. Cause I just wouldn't be able to pronounce, you know, I wouldn't be able to pronounce names and then knowing that, you know, when you give a street name to a taxi driver, you, you don't just say that street name, you say the crossroad as well. Otherwise you can't get to where you're going. It was mental. But as someone who was like 26, going to work out there, it was the, the most amazing experience because it was very work hard, play hard, you know, yeah, it was just- Is it the, there's a word for the, um... The Chinese work ethic, 996, isn't that? I mean, yeah, there's a, yeah it's called the, nine, the 996 is when you're working out as a nine till nine, six days a week. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, I, as standard, I was working six days a week, sometimes seven. Um, I would finish work at like midnight, but then I'd go and party because I could, because I was young, <laughs> and then <laughs> go home. <laughs> And what were you expecting of the factories there back back then when you were 26? Did you have, did you come with that sort of suspicion of them or were you open-minded? I was open-minded. I just, you know, prior to moving to China, my perception of uh, manufacturing was basically, for me, I was a designer who 
did a tech pack, a technical drawing of a garment, and I just emailed it to the factory. And you didn't think about it? And just, I just didn't think about, you know, sometimes when the factories would come back to me, I'd just be like, oh, why do they need more information you I know, know. I'd, I'd give them like minimal information and think they could make a garment from that um or you know do these really stylized designs where i put lines everywhere and they wouldn't understand it i feel like god why can't they understand anything there? why can't they understand my vision exactly precisely why can't they understand all these star lines and seams that are going everywhere of course it's like of course you could make it so i had like really no patience for for what was happening it's kind of like there. useful arrogance isn't it in a way completely completely so when i moved there and i was i was completely the shoe was on the other foot I mean, I went from being a designer sitting in a very cushy office in London, you know, drinking 10 cups of tea a day to working in a very busy environment for a Chinese company who had their own factory. So, you know, we'd work directly with their own factory um, and being the person that is with my designs, going to the factory with my designs to sit there and work with them. I really started to understand how complex and difficult it was for them in terms of like language and understanding. Like they'd work so hard. They want to give you your vision. But, you know, designers can be quite arrogant in the fact that I, I think a lot of designers like myself, and I admit it, weren't trained so well in the technique of garment, you know, how things were put together. Um, and you just design with just like lines everywhere and stitch lines and you know the, these amazing pattern cutters and, and 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 seamstresses would be like this just does not work at all you know so I I went from being a designer to basically a designer stroke product developer it was kind of you know, working with factories not just on my designs but other people's designs as well and being like okay I think this is how they envision it and translating, you know, translating styles, translating information to them so they understood, um, which actually made the sample rooms better. What did the factories, what are they like? Describe them. Wow, I went to a range of different factories. Yeah, um, yeah I mean... Old school, high tech, um, scary, inspiring. A lot of them are really high tech. I mean, a lot of them are run by very, very, very young, rich, you know, factory owners, like driving Porsches, you know. And are they from um, factory owning dynasties, you know, like in a the UK, the rag trade sort of runs in families. Yeah. yeah. So it's yeah. the same. So they've, come, they've come in and modernised exactly. and got on board with the tech. Precisely. I mean, when I was actually, when I was actually living there, I mean, I'd see some, don't get me wrong, I'd see some horrendous factories, like small sample rooms, uh, conditions weren't so great, uh, packed, packed with people. I went to one, one factory where they had uh, kids running around with no shoes on. I mean, it, it wasn't the norm, but I did see it, you know, um, and then and it really depends on who, what company uh, that you're going to the factory for. So if like you say like Marks and Spencer's and next, they have really, you know, they're big on ethical practice. A lot of their factories were just amazing, you know, great, high tech, everyone looked after, you know, really, really, really 
strict policies on um, on you know on the ethics of working in the factory. So it was great. Is there a thing? Is there a thing called a ghost factory? Yes. Can you tell us about that? So a lot of factories would then subcontract or have. Or when their clients came to, to visit them and do audits, they'd have this amazing factory that you'd think where your garments were being uh, manufactured in, not knowing that they had kind of other factory. Sometimes they'd own the other factory or they'd subcontract the work to other factories that were less standard. And it's mainly due to the fact that a lot of factories would... Um, just take on a lot of work so they'd fill their capacity but and they didn't want to turn down work so they would subcontract the work to other factories and um, I remember going to one factory in particular that was absolutely amazing Sh- amazing showrooms you know marbled floors you could eat your dinner off the floor it was so shiny and then I remember going to that factory and kind of seeing the line and not seeing like the stuff that I was that I was supposed to be looking at and they were like oh no we need to take you somewhere else so the driver kind of taking me somewhere else to a different factory and being like oh my god it was in the back of beyond it was tiny and hot and sweaty and stuff completely different to the factory that I'd seen and they were using this smaller factory as a sample room um and it was just such such poor standards and I was quite shocked that they would take me there because usually you know they'd hide it and you know they'd send the sample straight to your office so you could review them but they actually like took me there and I was just a bit like whoa you know this is <laughs> is Shanghai great. multicultural um I won't go that far. <laughs> so what, what I'm curious about is, we know that you're, you're, you've got taxi Chinese yeah. language, Mandarin, and um, what have, are there any other black women around doing jobs like you? Or is, uh, did, you, did you feel different in that way? Yes. I mean, in, in, yeah. in terms of just um, other foreigners, I guess in Shanghai, yes, there were a, a huge, it was a massive community, UK community, um, huge American community, French, German, Spanish, huge. So you had the diverse Europeans yeah. so, and so then you had the Shanghai residents. That's it. So on a night out, you would, sometimes you would literally just, just see like, you know, French and UK. You could go out and just talk to maybe 10 or 15 random UK people. Um, in terms of in terms of black women, <laughs> nah. Um, when I first moved to Shanghai, I joined the Afro-Caribbean Society and um, it was it was really weird. I think my expectation was I was going to meet a lot of um, other black people and I met a lot of people who had like maybe had lived in the Caribbean but were not black um just very very odd but um that sounds quite strange it was really weird I was like uh you're in the Africa you were expecting that the black yeah. people would be there but there aren't any they weren't but I guess, I mean, as I left Shanghai, there were two black hairdressers that had opened so I could get, you know, get my hair done. And I did actually start to meet more and more black women. Weirdly enough, I saw a girl I'd gone to school with on the plane who also lived in Shanghai, a black 
I'd not seen her since I was 16. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you live in Shanghai? It was very weird. And she'd lived in Shanghai maybe about 10 years. Um, so that was that was cool. But on the whole, not so many black women, but a lot of black men. Just okay. more black men than there were black women. <laughs> and um, for when we're sort of like understanding about these sort of supply chain issues about sort of where the pieces are assembled and then and put together if um we if we want to be a more conscious shopper in the UK what kind of things do we have to put in place to make sure that the stuff that we buy doesn't come from places where the people making it um don't have high enough working conditions standards I think it's just really simple. If you're going to buy cheap, then you know the whole manufacturing of that of that garment is going to be cheap. I mean, they're, they're, that company's going to be cutting costs all the way through um, the supply the supply of making that and manufacturing of making that. So I think that being a conscious shopper and, and and not kind of buying into that whole cheap fast fashion um world will make a huge impact because you know if you're buying a, a jacket for eight pounds how much do you think you know how much do you think it costs to actually make that jacket how much do you think that that company is paying their supplier paying and the machinist who sits and machines all those seams how long does that take i mean and how much of the eight pounds that she get does she get precisely because in making a jacket it's not one person making that jacket or it's not one person making any garment you've got someone who's just sewing on sleeves just sewing on you know just sewing on pockets so you've got about six or seven people even more than that, in the process of, of packing, that, posting, packing, storing, trim, threads, buttons, ironing, ironing, like literally, you know, ironing into lining into your garment, ironing to to to, to stiffening, cutting, so, you know, and then stitching. It's just absolutely amazing how hard um, the manufacturers work out there. And I think the whole thing about you know China. It's, you know, being unethical or China being, um, you know, just bad in, in, in that sense is, is really just, a, I think, is just an image that's perpetuated by... Well, what it does is it people. others them. It says yeah, basically it's exactly. not our fault, it's their fault. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, if we ask them to make an eight-pound jacket yeah. and they find a way of making it. Yeah. And that's what an eight-pound jacket looks like there's it's quite nuanced this whole subject when you dig mm. into it because there's privilege as well yeah talking about it like i'm <laughs> what this is from um rick owens cashmere <laughs> <laughs> which i got i buy second i bought second hand obviously yeah but it's just like you know incredibly i i really like fabric and i yeah so <clears throat> and i've got money to do that so this yeah. scarf second hand was still a few hundred quid yeah. And um, will last in my whole life. Well, lucky me, right? Lucky me yeah. that I can well, that I can do that. And, you know, we're, even speaking about it is just really toe curling because the, 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 the comeback is, well, it's all right for you. You know, you know, you can afford to take that choice and to buy, yeah. you know, to buy those kind of things. But what about the people who can't afford it? And what's our reply to them? I mean, I don't really have one. I don't know. 
to be like to be honest not all fast fashion retailers are bad okay you're never gonna get a, a fast fashion retailer who are 100 sustainable because it's impossible what's the best of the cheaper options <laughs> I mean, there are retailers out there who have got um, really good ethical practices in place. And that would be like your Marks and Spencers and your Next, and maybe not like being most fashionable, but they have really good ethical practices in place and have done for a number of years. Even Primark, actually, I've got to say, Primark have really improved um, on their ethical practice and compliances. Um, so they're, they're doing a lot more. One of the ways that is really easy to track this stuff is on the website, The Ethical Consumer, which I really mm. like. The Ethical Consumer um, Buckers is a um, is like an independent um, research body that looks into all different companies. And you can get a membership for like 28 quid a year and they've got this database thing. So you log on and if you're going to buy like a mm. washing machine or a pair of boots, you can look up and they will grade for like people planet they will give you all the information that you need that is fantastic. so if it, yeah if it's like yeah. fashion or something so it'll say next and then it'll say scores out of 10.6.9 why yeah. and it'll say you know it's really um great for the planet but you know it mm. invests in so it's really good for example with banks is that the the ethical consumer the ethical I'll consumer the show i absolutely love it i really i just think it's a great way to spend 28 quid especially yeah. for sort of when you're buying things like you know cars tvs you know things like that because mm. there's a massive difference in how those companies behave banking looking at the banking is incredible i've recently changed and i'm just fully on starling and tide now lloyd's bank you know i was with their with them for years and years and years and the connections in terms of who they invest because companies that big are really kind of propping up political systems and things yeah. it's really like a you know it's a big deal i just don't want mm. them to have my money yeah and um yeah not lloyd's though other other <laughs> other um other unethical <laughs> banks yeah. are available <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> they, won't be, they won't be sponsored this week's podcast is sponsored yeah, by Lloyd's exactly. Bank home of the beautiful thoroughbred horse where you can be free no uh, yeah the ethical consumer whatever you know whatever your levels of interest in this subject is a fascinating yeah. read and the information is um, produced in a really accessible way I think yeah. so and so, yeah, changes like that. You, you'll be able to see them moving up and down the charts. If Primark are getting better, you'll be able to see yeah. them moving up. So you, you managed to get back in love with your um, industry. Yeah, I found the love again, probably. Nice, because it? it's just not, you know, it's just not the same old thing. I think that I'm seeing uh, the industry in a totally, a totally different perspectives um, and a totally different, you know, totally different angle view, everything. I mean, I'm going into an industry or into, in, into using software that I had no knowledge of before. I had no kind of idea. So it almost feels like I'm starting anew, which is really exciting. And then just working with designers who are in this industry, um, it's fantastic because, you know, they're, they're new, you know, like I've been doing it for so long. Back in the day when I was like, started designing, it was like, 
pencil and paper, quill and ink, you know, it feels like it was that long ago. So I'm learning, constantly learning from, from these people. And also because of the nature of the work we're doing, it, I'm not just mixing with fashion designers. So we're, we're working with motion designers and animators. Um, I've got, you know, I've started gamers. working gamers, a 3D designer who's like working, a 3D interior designer that's working with us at the moment. So it's just opening up a whole new creative world that I wouldn't have been a part of if I just stuck to what I was doing. Um, the, thing, the thing I love about it, Louise, and this is something we've re- recently been talking about in real work, is how it's a simple idea that solves an enormous problem. Mm. Um, the simple idea of designing on a piece of software which is far more accurate and realistic yeah. cuts out low, you know, wastage in loads of different areas exactly. in a way that you couldn't have done just by drilling down on the supply chain. 100%. So it's a lovely, and, it's, and it gives me... It gives me faith in the future i mean my yeah. kid my kid who's five on her ipad has got a game you know when you do dress up and you spin yeah. the person around and all those kind of things yeah. this is she's just five she didn't have to be taught how to learn that she just went tup 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 you know and it can cut its hair off and curl its hair yeah and you know i feel, it gives me confidence you know those that kind of creative problem solving it gives me confidence in the future of the industry. A hundred percent. The possibilities are huge. I mean, yeah. you know, you start off with 3D design and then you go into like, suddenly you're in a world of AR and VR and, yeah. you know, mm. virtual shopping and virtual fittings and, you know, NFT, block te- blockchain technology. It just doesn't end. You literally like, you know, the, the possibilities and, and being involved in it are just, are just massive. So, Yeah. I think. Thank you for finally working on our um, technical problems and getting here to give us your story. It's been. Fa- I love hearing your enthusiasm, and I love Thanks. how you're still in this industry. You're more excited and more engaged yeah. than ever, and it's kind of unrecognisable compared to the sort of machine that you went into all those years ago. And I love that you're just embracing that change and loving it. It's like a renaissance. <laughs> Thank you. If people want Thank to. If people want to find out more about your business, where should they go? Yeah, you can um, find me at um, inhousecreativity.com. I've also got a profile on LinkedIn, um, which we're forever feeding people with lots of knowledge and information. So I've got uh, in-house Your LinkedIn game is strong. Thank you very much. I've just actually hired someone who's like an amazing writer. She's so interesting. She's got the same level of enthusiasm as me. So she's literally started taking over from the article writing that I was doing. And she absolutely like is so into 3D design. And she comes from a, she's a fine artist, totally different different backgrounds. So this is the future. This is the future. So yeah, you can uh, find me there as well. (laughs) Thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you so much. See ya. Goodbye. (laughs) That's the end of this week's episode of the Real Work Podcast. If you want more from me before the next episode, or you'd like to learn more about real work, You can find me on Instagram and YouTube where I share experience and advice for women who want to work and earn on their own terms. My Instagram handle is at doreal.work and on YouTube it's realwork, all capitals, all one word. Please rate and review this podcast if you know how (laughs) and tell people about it. It all helps. Thank you for being here. See you next time.
Great. That's another one in the can. Have we, we're recording twice next week, aren't we? Yes. Yes, we are. Okay, good. Yeah. Thanks for sorting out today, even though I wasn't at home. I know it's a bit difficult That's all to right. get together. You know, every, yeah, I'm pleased with it, how it's all going, though. So thanks for your... Oh, there's, um, and there's some awards coming up, which we need to think about. Obviously, the podcast's fun. It's fun to make, but obviously, you know, it's, it's there for a reason, yeah. for a business reason. Yeah. And so we need to think about um, awards. And can I have your support with that to um, start getting that moving? Yes, yeah, I'll um I'll start listening back to episodes and putting best bits together, and um right. and we can write them. Well, it'll be a good, it'll be a good, you know, be a good learning thing for you as well because once you've done that for ours, when your podcast is ready to do that, you'll you'll know how to do it. So hopefully, you know, it's a useful thing to do as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, actually, um, our podcast has just been nominated for three awards actually at the um the podcast awards so um so that's really fun that's that's already happened yes yeah we entered a couple of months ago and yeah the other week we got a nomination for um best comedy podcast best female hosted podcast and they've put us in for the people's choice as well so um yeah if you've got time actually maybe i could send you the link and you could maybe um vote for us perhaps See if we could okay. um, win win an award for my podcast that I do with my friend. For being the, the funniest. Yeah, that would be good, wouldn't it? <laughs> only if you have okay. time, though. Like, if Only if you have time. Of course I have time. I'm happy for you. If you want to make a podcast that your audience will adore, but the thought of making it yourself terrifies you to the core. Then you know who to call. Producer Buckers. She knows just what to do. Producer Buckers. To make your podcast dreams come true. She used to work in radio where she was poorly paleo. A dab hand at audio. Find Producer Buckers on Instagram at decibel underscore creative or click the link in the show notes. Come on, everyone. Producer Buckers, if you want to hire the best. Producer Buckers, just put it to the test. Producer Buckers, just press record and she does the rest. Producer Buckers.